Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today I am very pleased to welcome Spencer Piston, author of Class Attitudes in American Politics, Sympathy for the Poor, Resentment of the Rich, and Political Implications, new from Cambridge University Press. Spencer, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. So before we dive in and talk about this I think, provocative and surprising book. Uh, I wonder if you might just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and maybe how you came to this particular project. Sure thing. I am an assistant professor at Boston University. Uh, I've been here, this is my second year. And um, before that, I was at Syracuse University for a couple of years. And before that, I got my PhD from the University of Michigan in 2014. I went to Grinnell College for my undergraduate degree. And I came to this project through the study of public opinion. And I was finding, as many others have found, uh, quite a bit of evidence that when ordinary people decide which candidates to support or which policies to support, their attitudes towards social groups are very much on their minds. Attitudes about race, attitudes about gender, attitudes about religious groups, attitudes about sexual orientation. And yet there was very little research on how ordinary Americans felt about class and how their attitudes toward class groups might influence their political judgments. So this book is the result of my research project to figure out how ordinary people think about class and how that in turn shapes the policies and candidates they choose to support or oppose. Perfect. So there, there are, are, I guess, three big things that I would love for us to be able to, to talk about today. 
Um, so first, I'm going to ask you simply to walk through the argument that you make. Uh, I'm then going to ask you uh, to walk us through the evidence for that argument, in particular, because I think part of what you're arguing uh, is, is I think, so contrary to a lot of the conventional wisdom about some of these issues. Uh, and then we'll we'll sort of work our way around maybe toward the end to, to trying to explain, uh, I think, both the scholarly disconnect, right, why why of sort of folks like us not picked up on, on what you're arguing before, and then the political disconnect, and why is it that that what you're suggesting you found isn't isn't reflected in policy better? So let's let's start walk walk folks through your argument, if you would. The argument is that um, contrary to what is commonly believed, substantial proportions of Americans view the poor with sympathy. Substantial proportions of Americans also view the rich with resentment, and finally. They often, though not always, bring these class group attitudes to bear on their political judgments. So sympathy for the poor and resentment of the rich are widespread, powerful forces that under predictable circumstances, though not all circumstances, shape public opinion and electoral choice. So, so what are so so? Talk a little bit about sort of that that the widespread nature of that. Where do we see that playing? And you also argue that this is relatively not relative. You argue that it is consistent over time. Can you talk about both of those things? What are the issue areas or the 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 voting areas in which we see this pop up, and 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 where do we see it playing up over time? Yes, absolutely. So, there in terms of policies first. I think um, it's widely known that most Americans, and especially most white Americans, have serious concerns about what is often called welfare, which is a narrow set of policies, as it's typically construed, relating to cash or cash-like benefits for able-bodied adults. And so it's absolutely true that majorities of Americans, and again, majorities of white Americans, um, oppose this form of welfare. But in looking at that opposition, that widespread public opposition to welfare, some folks have missed out on what public opinion data have been showing for decades about a wide range of other policies related to the social welfare state. So as a general matter, aid to the poor, aid to the homeless, the earned income tax credit, and many other programs that are designed to redistribute wealth downward are actually very popular. And public opinion scholars have known this for decades, but they haven't, I think, done as good of a job as they might have explaining why. Similarly, increased taxes on the rich are very popular and have been very popular for decades. And yet here, too, I think existing research did not do as good of a job as it might have of explaining why that is the case. Turning to the example of candidates, um, it's certainly true that in um, two recent presidential elections, uh, Obama versus McCain in 2008 and Obama versus Romney in 2012, sympathy for the poor and resentment of the rich um, bolstered Obama's vote share and made a difference in those two elections. In the 2016 presidential primary as well, on the Democratic side, I think Bernie Sanders uh, reaped a huge benefit due to widespread resentment of the rich uh, among his supporters. So it's it's uh, there are a couple of things I want to sort of pull apart there. One of them is that at least going back to the maybe the DLC Democratic Leadership Council and and sort of Clinton in the 1990s, there has been this sense among Democrats 
that 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 this is in this is dangerous rhetorical and political territory, right? That you don't want to align yourself too clearly with the poor because Americans resent poor people and and tend to blame people for their poverty, right? This is the conventional wisdom, not just that politicians, I think, have held both policies, but of of both historians and political scientists, right? At least sort of have, have operated on this assumption that there is this this disdain for the poor i i i'm 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 talk to me about where where you think this is is coming from how how why are you confident that that this is a real thing and then we can talk maybe down the road about what the implications are of this for 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 democrats in particular right who might be more inclined to 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 champion poor and low income people sure well, I think there are some good reasons uh, why folks have been reluctant to, as a strategic matter, I mean, why folks have been reluctant to push programs that would aid the poor. And yes, the example of uh, welfare and welfare reform or the gutting of the AFDC as it transitioned um, to, um, <clears throat> excuse me, as it, as it transitioned to uh, its next version and dramatically cut um, aid to poor people, and that was uh, viewed to be a political success for Clinton. I think the problem is that folks have overinterpreted the lessons of what happened with, with welfare. So welfare has been extensively raced by those who have attacked it. They have associated it with black people. It is also um, something that can go to able-bodied individuals, and so there, the um, much-noted American love of hard work and desire for individual responsibility plays a role. But for many programs, for example, the Earned Income Tax Credit, well, that is a tax credit, which looks a little bit different to a lot of Americans than what we traditionally think of as government spending. And it also goes to workers who don't make very much money. So it's a very different kind of uh, program and one that is much more popular. Now, in terms of the evidence, yeah, go ahead. You can go ahead. I was just saying before we turn to the evidence, because it's 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 you mentioned there sort of this distinction between you know sort of poor people and working poor people, but but you argue that that's not that that people unbidden will talk about sympathy for the poor and contempt for the rich, which we haven't talked about quite as much, uh, but that people tend not to make uh, to sort of categorize poor people in the way that often politicians do. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, absolutely. So uh, one thing that I did was look at the results of surveys in which folks are asked, and these are nationally representative samples of ordinary Americans who are asked, what do you like and what do you dislike about each of the two major parties? And what do you like and what do you dislike about the main presidential candidates, which in that year, 2008, were Obama and McCain? And it's striking how often as you say, unbidden, people bring up the poor and the rich, and they talk about them uh, in general, writ large. They don't tend to make distinctions between the working poor and the non-working poor in these responses, or the generous rich versus the greedy rich. Those might be distinctions that are important to people in other circumstances. But when you just ask them what they think of the two major parties or the two presidential candidates, what they tend to say is they like those parties that they perceive to help the poor and take from the rich. And they like those candidates who they perceive to take from the poor or to help the poor, excuse me, and take from the rich. 
And so the this adds up in 2008 to a big advantage for the Democrats over the Republicans. And other research by other political scientists have found something very similar. A recent book by uh, Matt Grossman and Dan Hopkins, or Dave Hopkins, excuse me. And so what we see is even though in political science, very few people are making models of vote choice that include attitudes toward class groups. When we take ordinary Americans on their own terms, we see that a lot of them are bringing up class groups spontaneously. And to me, that was a big sign. This is presented early in the book. That was a big sign that we needed to do a lot more to see how people thought toward about these groups, the poor and the rich, and how that affected their political judgments. Is, is, I mean, is the implication of this that Democrats should be more, I don't know if aggressive is the word, more, more willing to talk in these, in these class terms, ways in which we're, we're supposedly not supposed to speak as Americans? Is there, is there evidence here that Americans do in fact think along the lines of class and that, that one party could benefit from exploiting that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's, um, there appears to be at the moment a democratic advantage where because Democrats are perceived to be the party that helps poor people more often and Republicans are perceived to be the party that helps rich people more often. That's one thing that's running in the Democrats' favor these days. But that advantage is not inevitable. Republicans could erode that. If they chose to put forward more policies and have more rhetoric that ran in this direction – and Democrats, I think, could easily uh, accentuate their advantage so that they could deepen their advantage should they decide to be more progressive in terms of economic policy and in terms of their rhetoric. Um, so I do want us to come to, um, around to sort of squaring squaring this with, with actual behavior and, and rhetoric of politicians. Uh, but I do want to just maybe have you walk through for folks um, – uh, why you are confident that 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 what you have found that there is this widespread sympathy for poor people in the U.S. and this this uh, equally broad based uh, I don't know that I don't think contempt is the word that you use but a disdain uh, for the rich uh, why should we believe you so so walk us through your evidence a little bit if you would sure well the first uh, piece of evidence is the one I just talked about when people are asked open ended questions and they can say yeah. whatever they like or dislike about the two major parties and about these two presidential candidates in 2008. And if sort of the standard thesis were right that people don't care about class, that we are a classless society or at least one that is blind to class, then I think people would not have brought up class very often. Or if alternatively, people view the poor negatively and tend to admire the rich, think they'll become the rich someday and therefore respect their talent and ambition, then they would have mentioned these class groups the, the class group of the rich in positive terms and the poor in negative terms. But what I found was just the opposite. People not only brought up the poor and the rich on their own, but referred to the poor in sympathetic ways as a group that needed help and criticized parties that they perceived not to help them or candidates they perceived not to help them. And at the same time, described the rich in resentful ways, in ways where um, it, they spoke unfavorably of parties or candidates who didn't do enough to take money to tax the rich in particular. So that was the first piece of evidence. The second piece of evidence was to ask people more traditional survey questions. And here the questions would be, um, do you think the poor have more or less than they deserve? Do you think the rich have more or less than they deserve? How often do you feel compassion or sympathy for the poor and for the rich? And how often do you feel anger or resentment? 
toward the poor or toward the rich. Now here too, if sort of the classic classless thesis that so many people subscribe to, that Americans don't care about class, we would see a lot of people giving no answer or giving don't know answers, or their answers would be unrelated to their political preferences later on in the survey. But in fact, not only did people routinely answer these questions and with no trouble, but they did so in a direction that's uh, the exact opposite of what we often hear is the case. Many people reported feeling compassion and sympathy toward the poor, and very few reported feeling compassion or sympathy toward the rich. And the opposite pattern was true for anger and resentment. Very few people reported feeling anger or resentment toward the poor, whereas quite a few uh, reported feeling anger or resentment toward the rich. So the second piece of evidence is to show uh, in a series of nationally representative surveys, uh, routine and consistent findings in which the poor are viewed with sympathy among other survey respondents and the rich are viewed with resentment. Then the, the final, the third piece of evidence is that these class group attitudes in many instances were um, very strongly connected to people's preferences about policies and about candidates. So if you ask people how one of the main things political scientists do is to analyze um, what factors are associated with people's voting decisions. So we know, for example, it's be no surprise to folks that d- people who identify as Democrats tend to vote for the Democratic candidate in a presidential election, though not always. People who identify as Republicans tend to vote for the Republican candidate in a presidential election, though not always. So partisanship is one factor that we think makes a big difference in voting decisions. But as I said, it's very rare for a model of vote choice to include class group attitudes. And uh, what this book shows is that that's been a serious omission among political scientists, where we've been missing a key factor that determines how people vote. You can predict how someone will vote and will have voted in the uh, 2012 or 2008 presidential election pretty easily just by knowing how sympathetically they view the poor and how resentfully they view the rich. So the third piece of evidence is this tight connection I find in many instances between class group attitudes and political preferences. So, so in there, so what do you find, and I know this isn't your principal focus, but what do you find uh, by way of correlation between uh, class position and class attitude? Great question. There's actually uh, not much of a connection at all. And I think this is part yeah. of the reason why um, uh, social scientists and pundits and political analysts have been blind to the importance of class. In American politics, because class position is actually not a very strong divider of vote choice, of policy positions, and even of how one feels toward class groups. So um, in one sense, Americans are not very divided by class politically. They are, however, divided by their class attitudes. They're divided by how they feel about the poor people and the rich people in the United States. So given all this, I mean, I, I, I guess going back to the questions I asked earlier, why is it that um, sort of scholarship around poverty and attitudes, uh, I think this this pushes very much against that kind of conventional wisdom. And even if you go back to, you know, sort of seminal histor- histories like Michael Katz's In the Shadow yes. of the Poorhouse, right? We've told a lot of this history sort of based on the assumption that, right, we, we dream up and blame down, right? That this is sort of a core of our history. So how have we got it so wrong in terms of, of the scholarship 
uh, in history and political science. Uh, and then we'll finish up by talking about why is it the politicians don't seem to be responsive to this. Well, I think there are some very good reasons why uh, scholars haven't been able to detect the pattern of class group attitudes that this book uncovers. One of them is that um, scholarship about the United States is in the shadow of scholarship about Western Europe. And it is absolutely true that most Western European countries have more generous welfare states, have more generous social welfare policy than the United States does. And many, many scholars have dedicated their uh, research agendas, even their entire careers, to explaining why. And we've come up with some very good reasons why. Uh, the United States is a post-slavery society, whereas the Western European countries are not. There is a culture here of individualism, of distrust of government, of the belief in economic mobility and economic opportunity. And all those factors are important reasons why uh, the United States does not have as generous a welfare state as, as Western Europe. But in trying to figure out that question, in trying to figure out why the United States welfare state is not more generous, what we've sort of lost sight of is what about those people who do support more generous programs? And so if we flip the research question around and say, in a land dominated by individualism, um, belief in self-reliance, distrust of government, racial prejudice, why do any Americans support welfare state programs, let alone majorities of them in many, many cases? Then flipping that research question on its head a little bit uh, is what leads this book to a, a very different answer. Another reason why um, we haven't done a good job, I think, of explaining public opinion about class is because we've been very focused on political outcomes. And by we, I mean especially political scientists, but also folks in the media. When our welfare state is not as generous as other places, it is a natural tendency to assume that, well, this is a democracy – so this must be what people want. The truth, however, is that in electoral democracies, there are many, many cases in which people do not get what they want. Uh, if um, the majorities of the public ruled the day, the United States government would look very different than it does right now. Atheists, for example, would be banned from teaching in public schools. Um, very recently, we would have been uh, attacking North Korea. So majority opinion very often does not rule the day, and I think we just have to be cautious about inferring public opinion from political outcomes. So, so that that I mean that's and then that you know calls to mind sort of recent research by by uh, Marty Gillens and Larry Bartles and and, and that whole crowd. Uh, so, talk a little bit as as we wind our way toward concluding here about. Uh, sort of what you add to those insights into why it is there is this apparent lack of correlation between public attitudes and public preferences and public policy. How how did we get here? And then maybe do you have any ideas about what we do to to effectively push back against that? Sure. Yeah. Well, I'll take the the first part for now. So, um, <laughs> candidates for Candidates running for office are in a tough spot. They, generally speaking, want to get support from constituents who are pretty progressive in terms of social welfare policy preferences, generally speaking, and that even applies to Republican candidates. Even just among the mass public who are Republicans, most favor government programs that would help the poor, most view the poor with sympathy and the rich with resentment. So that's one set of incentives. They want to appeal to the constituents. 
But in order to run a campaign um, and in order to get support while in office, they also need money. And they increasingly need money over the past few decades and even in the past few years. And that means they have to appeal to wealthy donors. And wealthy donors have very different preferences than the mass public. They are much more likely to be conservative on economic policy preferences, and in particular, less likely to support aid to the poor and especially less likely to uh, support taxes on themselves. And so politicians kind of have to appease two masters, but one of them is more pliable than the other. Wealthy donors are well-organized, they're very sophisticated, and they're very attentive. The mass public is not. The mass public has a lot more on its mind than the policy positions of an individual candidate. And so I call this that the politicians are trapped between a rock and a soft place. They can do a number of things to distract the public. For example, they can focus on completely different issues other than economic issues. They can confuse the public by talking about economic issues in a way that downplays their distributive consequences for class groups. So the classic example of this is the estate tax. So you can refer to it as a death tax. You think of it not in terms of taxing multi-million dollar estates, but taxing people when they die, which is much less palatable. Or you can describe it as affecting small family farms, which it actually doesn't. It only affects multi-million dollar estates when we're talking about the federal estate tax. But many people don't know that. And this book shows, in fact, that many people are ignorant that the estate tax only affects the wealthy. And then finally, they can just ignore the wishes of the public and hope that uh, some other issue will come along where they can win the day. So these three strategies to confuse, distract, or ignore are what allow politicians to appease their wealthy donors while still getting the support from the public they need to win an election. How do you convince, I mean, I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm operating as someone whose sort of area is, is poverty and and cares about the well-being of, of poor and low-income people in particular. And I'm frustrated by our national failure to be more responsive to those kinds of needs. And I think it's a practical matter. If you're going to expect somebody to do something about that at this particular political moment, it's Democrats, not Republicans, you're going to turn to. How do you convince Democratic candidates that they do not need to be afraid of uh, of what tapping into to these clear class attitudes? Yeah, if I were going to give... Uh Democrats' uh, advice, um, then my task would be a lot easier today than it was when I started research on this book. When I started research on this book and began to have these survey find, to find this pattern in the surveys, a lot of folks asked, said, you know, this can't possibly be true or politicians would be capitalizing on it. To me, this is reminiscent of the old joke about The Economist where there are two walking along the road and one says, here's a $20 bill on the side of the road. And the other says, no, it can't be or someone would have picked it up. What actually happened is that Bernie Sanders picked it up. This is a guy who had uh, very little else going for him. He was a very obscure candidate out of Vermont, a former independent, uh, was widely viewed as a long shot. Hillary Clinton was the presumptive nominee. And by basing his campaign around class, he made a surprisingly deep run at the 2016 presidential primary. So I think other candidates can learn from his example. This is not to say he ran a perfect campaign or that the Democrats should have chose Sanders instead of Clinton. It's just to say that one particular strategy that he chose has been shown to be a really good one. 
The second thing I would say to Democratic candidates is it is very easy to get um, lost in your campaign bubble. Most Democratic candidates, like most Republican candidates, walk in very wealthy circles. They're very wealthy themselves. Most of the people they talk to are very wealthy. And so it's easy, even if you see a poll in front of you saying Americans X, Y, and Z support this policy that will aid the poor and tax the rich, it's easy to not believe that because you're actually not in touch on a day-to-day basis with everyday Americans. So I would encourage them, if they really want to take account of public opinion, to reach beyond the wealthy circles that they normally uh, traverse in. You're listening to the New Books Network. We've been speaking with Spencer Piston, who is the author of Class Attitudes in American Politics, Sympathy for the Poor, Resentment of the Rich, and Political Implications from Cambridge University Press. Uh, Spencer, what are you working on now? The next project um, is going to look at racial attitudes a bit more. And there is a project that I'm working on with Ashley Jardina at Duke University, which is a much less optimistic project. This project gets at the disturbing phenomenon of white people who dehumanize black folks, and especially dehumanize black people in an animalistic form. And uh, this belief, I believe, this sort of these sort of dehumanizing attitudes are increasingly consequential, and especially are consequential for those whites who support punitive criminal justice policies. Um, I was about to say that that I look forward to that, but that feels like that's not quite the right way to frame that. Um, I know what you mean. (laughs) Spencer Piston, author of Class Attitudes in American Politics. Spencer, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Stephen. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.